0: You are so beautiful, and you are so powerful. And some of that power was really evident here yesterday afternoon. And if we had made a ritual circle uh, with objects there where you could uh, step in, and uh, speak about uh, the beauty and the truth and the uh, joyousness and kindness in your life, that would have been nice, too. <laughs> that would have been good, but it would have been a little boring. <laughs> and, and it wouldn't have taken the courage that uh, was clearly here And it wouldn't have had that powerful and still hard to define uh, magic, alchemy of uh, being able to know and stand with and give voice to the unwanted. Who wants to be scared half to hell or be uh, sunk in grief, or to be torn apart by uh, anger. and So there's uh, some uh, beautiful uh, hole making there. And I like the way a uh, local poet and therapist te- speaks of that. And it's true not only of those of you who went into the Truth Mandala, but all of us, I believe, who witnessed it. Because when you went in, even though uh, we did not not have gone in ourselves, we were right there with you, wasn't that so? And that uh, your stark honesty and your valor uh, was it was uh, better than any vitamin supplement. It was charging our, our whole circulation. We felt it in our bodies. Uh, and we felt that increase in life. So this is uh, part of a poem by uh, my friend Jennifer Wellwood, a psychotherapist and po- poet in Marin. And get how the beauty of these opposites. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. How else are you going to find it? Opening to my loss, I gained the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. So there is that beautiful tantric interplay of life that I had already alluded to earlier in the day, I think when I was saying that poem by Bill Johnston, I take to myself my broken self, my guilt, my peace, my folly and joy, my sickness, my health and laughter and agony, hating and loving, my fear and my birthing, and I am made whole. That's what our world needs, whole people not shells of people, not empty people walking around with their power and their suits, and, but whole people. So let's, let's look at uh, what the goddess, the mother of all Buddhas, uh, brings us in terms of great movements of our world and our soul. I love it that there's a German philosopher I studied, Ludwig Feuerbach, who talked about our spiritual journey, our religious apprehensions of reality, that uh, as you look at them through history are, like he said, the beating of a heart, the systole and diastole of the heart. The systole, that's when the heart contracts and sends the blood out, and then equally necessary diastole. The heart opens and the circulation, the blood comes flooding back. And you can't say which is more valuable, (laughs) which is truer. And that helped me as I played with that thought in my graduate study years, see how that kind of rhythm could characterize different spiritual apprehensions of that. So, there's what is of the sacred, how we see what is almost meaningful and sacred. So, there's the systole that's and that projects. Oh, it's so beautiful. I'm going to project the sacred out there so that I can see it and bow to it and obey it and pray to it. That's the act of projection. We project that sacred. And so we have... Gods out there in heaven. And I was born, as were many of you, into a tradition where that Big Daddy God uh, was still up there. And... <laughs> <laughs> and then there comes a time when. Uh, that projection of the sacred uh, kind of, after a while, deadens life around you, desacralizes it, can make it same humdrum, bled of beauty, bled and deprived of the numinous. And so we want to invite it back. We resacralize the life around doesn't that's that diastole movement. Mm-hmm. And we interject. And if that's the—just a minute, I'm looking for the markers. I think they're here. They are. Mm-hmm. That's one. Let's see. I guess this is the one. Watch the cord by your feet. You see it? It's just, yeah, it's kind of tangled around your foot. Yeah. I'm working, you're looking at what I'm. No, just the mic. Oh, microphone. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Guess I could use a little help. Yeah. So we could see that sometimes in certain eras and circumstances the sacred gets stuck outside. That's our beautiful green planet, blue-green planet. And in the last centuries, Somehow we got the source of meaning, not only the sacred, but of intelligence, got stuck out here. This observing eye, this Newtonian, Cartesian eye got stuck out here, the observing eye, along with the big daddy god. that big daddy god kind of lost numinosity and beauty and meaning for a lot of people replaced by uh, the human power to manipulate reality and to study. And so this observing eye actually gained, could see a lot of the irregularities, invariances, laws of how things happen, a lot learned, lot learned in, from in that in classical science. But as I said, got stuck out here and began to think that this world was something that you could uh, manipulate, exploit, turn into goods and factories to produce the goods and minds forgetting what you wanted, and extract, miasma. Uh, so even the air and the climate, as well as the waters, are uh, contaminated. So that <laughs> what's happening now seems to be in that retrieval of the sacred we have that, we're haunted by the memory. It's almost like a memory for us that once this earth was cherished, was honored, rituals to befriend, to help the sun rise to honor the other fellow creatures, to keep it as a garden. So we can almost remember when it wasn't like this. And so now the diastole, this retrieval of the sacred, it's happening in our time. It's been happening through a lot of the 20th century, and it's taking place in art, in poetry, in spirituality, and in science. Bringing back source of meaning to actually to our home and into our secularized ordinary life. And we're homesick for that. And we're doing a beautiful job, as you look around, of bringing that back. And we're going to be looking at that today. So the Prajnaparamita, though, she appeared uh, 2,000 years ago. Our apprehension of her today is helping us. Our being able to see the goddesses, whether it's Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara, or Eve or Mary, uh, Hadija, all of the, they are we are bringing them back to help us retrieve our deep conviction that our work now is to re-sacralize our world. And that to do that, to see its exquisite sacredness, the mystery in it, is as important as uh, any silver bullet of technological fix for what's wrecking our world and why we got stuck out here why it's so serious this time is of course that we have unleashed we have the force of industrialism The Industrial Revolution, the power of that, and what it married us to in our economy. I mentioned yesterday how it's been just in the last years in my people of color cohort and the work, cohorts and the work that reconnects, it's become clearer to me how uh, the slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade, came hand in glove with the Industrial Revolution. That's what paid for the mills and the mines and the factories in England. And that's what impelled the reach of the colonial empire to get the markets and to get the resources. So that's made it much harder for us in this to to witness, to see the destruction so we're being impelled to retrieve the sacred in the face of seeing a great dyings and great contamination and whole spasms of extinction. So that retrieval of the sacred becomes just as like a, a matter of life and death. It's not just a spiritual comfort. It's necessary for us to breathe. When I was thinking about this retrieval of the sacred, uh, this introjection, I found myself thinking of one of my favorite songs. You know the songwriter Peter Mayer? He has a song called Holy Now. Everything is holy now. When I was a little boy, I'd go to church on Sundays as the song, and the priest would raise the cup and make... Say the blessings and we make the world holy, but now I look out and it's not a second rate world. Everything shines now, everything is holy now. We are learning how to do that. In Christianity, the theologians are doing that, stepping aside from the uh, teachings of original sin and teaching like Matthew Fox and others in creation spirituality, original blessing. That's very, very sneaky and powerful (laughs) because it's opening the door to a natural capacity for us to love life. And you see it in Islam, too. The whole popularity wave of Sufism of uh, to dance and praise with Rumi and the others and Hafiz, the uh, beauty of all forms of life and of the senses. And it doesn't carve up our lives into what is holy and what is secular. And that's one of the things that I love so much about the poetry of Rilke, I want to just give you some examples of that. Uh, It it has been for me in this lifetime one of my greatest joys was to be to be a translate Uh, and hear from the the Book of Hours and the Duino Elegies and the Sonnets to Orpheus. But here's some just some taste because I think poetry Uh, gets into our brain cells and body cells much faster than anything, any convincing prose. He's speaking in the language of a monk, in the voice of a monk, a Russian monk. And he very responded, he wrote this at the age of 23, and he had just been to Russia where he saw that Their spirituality was imbued with a great love for the earth. So now he's saying, I I have many brothers in the South who move handsome in their vestments through their cloister gardens. And in their Titians, God becomes an ardent flame. But When I lean over the chasm of myself, it seems my God is dark and like a web, a hundred roots silently drinking. This is the ferment I grow out of. (laughs) See what he's doing? The God that we'd associated with all shiny on a golden throne, he's pulling down and into his very sense of lack, the chasm of myself. And says, the God is there. I'm going to find my God there. In the dark. And it's like a swamp with hundred roots in the muck. You were doing this yesterday. And it takes courage and its most beautiful thing to see. Next one, he says, we must not. He's talking to God. These are all short poems to God. We must not portray you in king's robes, you drifting mist that brought forth the morning. Once again from the old paint boxes we take the same gold for scepter and crown that has disguised you through the ages. Piously we produce our images of you till they stand around you like a thousand walls. And when our hearts would simply open, our busy hands hide you. you god now look at what he does with this this talk about retrieval this is the god whose pious mother took the poet to see him in the catholic churches of prague and to kneel by the crucifix and she had him she wanted him to touch the wounds on christ's body and he had enough of that But that regal, God. So he says, get this, you God who live next door. If at times through the long night I trouble you with my urgent knocking, this is why I hear you breathe so seldom. I know you're all alone in that room. If you should be thirsty, there's no one to get you a glass of water. (laughs) I wait, listening, always. Just give me a sign. I'm right here. As it happens, the wall between us is very thin. Why couldn't a cry from one of us break it down? It would crumble easily. It would hardly make a sound. So he (laughs) was exquisite. He sees that not only is he lonely, but God's lonely, stuck up there, distant from us. Why am I reaching again for the brushes? When I paint your portrait, God, nothing happens. But I can choose to feel you At my senses' horizon, you appear hesitantly like scattered islands. Yet standing here, peering out, I'm all the time seen by you. Oh, the choruses of angels use up all of heaven. There's no more room for you in all that glory. (laughs) You're living in your very last house. And all creation holds its breath listening within me because to hear you I keep silent. So he's kind of tiptoeing toward what at the same time in this last century science realized as well. The great reciprocity at the heart of the universe. And what's so amazing about being alive at this moment, knowing even a little bit about the teachings of the Lord Buddha, is that this was the teaching of the Buddha, too, a great reciprocity at the heart of it all. No one deity or several, no first cause, everything held in a web of mutual belonging. And so when we lose the idea of a big daddy God or a big royal God in the sky, then where do you turn? Where do you turn to put your love? You've been putting it in devotion, in treaties, and give me this and give me that, and terrible me, and forgive me this and forgive me that. And now you bring it back. Where do you... Put your devotion. This gives a hint. How surely gravity's law, strong as an ocean current, takes hold of even the smallest thing and pulls it toward the heart of the world. That's the first time, I love that poem so much, the first time I've ever read it or thought it, talking about retrieving the sacred, because has been pulling back, loving gravity, feeling gravity as we sit here held to earth, feeling our weight on the chairs. Each thing, each stone, blossom, child, is held in place. Only we, in our arrogance, push out beyond what we each belong to for some empty freedom. If we surrendered to Earth's intelligence, we would rise up rooted like trees. Instead, we entangle ourselves in knots of our own making and struggle, lonely and confused and so like children we begin again to learn from the things of our world because they are in god's heart and they have never left them this is what the things can teach us to fall patiently to trust our heaviness even a bird can do has to do that before he can fly The movement of the soul is down now, coming back from dizzy and pretentious heights, learning to trust its own heaviness, just as you yesterday trusted the grief and the fear and the anger and the emptiness of the empty bowl. And in that trust we find a sacredness. I just remembered I found something that I had with me I'd love to share with you about the anger Was given to me by my friend Becky Noble, great feminist historian. So, for those of us who uh, grabbed the stick yesterday and spoke the anger, and all of us who identified with that and supported that, <coughs> here are words about the source of even the word anger. Angerboda comes from the Eddas, the Norse myths. Frequently, she is described in negative terms, Angerboda. I wish I'd brought her. I have a doll that Vicki made. She's black and has a kind of beak, and she is fierce. Angerboda, get this, personifies women's grief, rage, and pain over the destruction of the world. The archaic meaning for anger is grief, and comes from the Norse word anger, Icelandic for sorrow or grief, and is akin to angst in German for fear, and her full name is Angerboda. To bode is to announce beforehand or predict coming from the early Proto-Indo-European language. And Angerboda pronounces, in some views, the end of things but that word "bod" is also related in, to the Sanskrit of "bodhi," she says, the one awakening. So Boda must have been earlier a divine messenger of grief and outrage, etc. So we learn how, in our time, to to. Uh, See the relational nature of anger and how different it is from hatred. In Buddhist teachings, the three causes of the suffering we inflict upon ourselves and others are, as you know, greed, hatred, and delusion or ignorance. And they Mutually support each other. The delusion is the notion that you're separate. And that notion feeds the need to have grab everything and pull to yourself because you are, and then uh, to feed that fictitious self and also hatred in order to push away that aversion which. Threatens the self. And there have been until recently male teachers who slipped and instead of saying hatred, said anger. So don't you ever fall for that. Anger is an effort to repair a relationship, it comes from that, not destroy. Got it? So in the... um, Let's talk a little bit about the... um, And and what I want to do is talk a little bit more, give you a little bit more tools or insights from Prajnaparamita and then a practice uh, for uh, experiencing uh, the sacredness of our belonging to this world that links us to all beings. Sister uh, Santa Chisa gave me, uh, I'm going to put out there on the wall, a, a car- picture of a statue of Prajnaparamita, and it's from a 13th century Indonesian Java, um, beautiful carving, it's very similar to one that we have at Spirit Rock both on the altar of the main meditation hall and outside the doors. And it is characterized, here she has just two hands, but they're held in this mudra of teaching. And we'll come back to that because this reverses the dualities that have archaically Separated the uh, male and the female, the masculine and the feminine views of the world, the role of that. In the but in the early scriptures and back at the time when her scriptures were uh, coming to the fore, and the first one was. The ashtasahasvika Prajnaparamita, which means perfection of wisdom in eight thousand lines, so it's quite long, <laughs> and it's the first of and the most fully translated of any previous scriptures into Chinese and into Tibetan, and uh, and it was that that I studied. But then there were other scriptures. And each one that came along was shorter, including the Heart Sutra. And coming to the final one, they got so short, the final one was just one letter. Ah. The sound we said at the beginning of the Truth Mandala. And the sound we'll say when we Go into be with the future beings tomorrow. So there weren't images of her, but there were verbal images. And here were some of them. Akasha. Anybody know what that means? Space, but deep space. Different from the sky of the sky, the father, uh, the sky father god. This is deep space, a space in which the bodhisattva flies. The bodhisattva trusts in the mother of all Buddhas, so completely that she flies in that deep space. And her wings are the wings of compassion and insight, just like those two weapons of the Shambhala warrior. Another is ananta that was a phrase for her a phrase and also but more than just a name it means endless like infinity that was ref- used for her another was shunya i bet some of you know what that means empty and by the same token Another of her names in this first scripture was Purna, full, empty and full. So Anna Purna, mother of abundance, a wonderful name of that mountain in the Himalayas. And then... Uh, ka and naba, and these are two words that refer to the navel, like your belly button, and the hole in the center of a wheel that must be empty so that the wheel can turn. It's round so, and it's so the wheel can turn and the axle can fit into it. And that was also a perception of her. She allows movement. She allows rotation. A phenomenon that of the cycle that runs through all nature. You know, I'm about. I want to draw it, but I I see that I didn't complete this. Where's my green? Here it is. Word. What? The word. I'll write them. I'm going to flip this, but I see that I didn't complete this. What we do? What we're doing in our In our work with the here with the mother of all buddhas, in our spiritual journey of this time, and in the work that reconnects, in all our pilgrimage of this time, in retrieving the sacred, the mage, you could see that what we're doing is. Instead of being stuck out here in horror and impotence, we find ourselves right here. And that I, both the I that sees and the pronoun I, belongs to Earth. It is the I of earth as well as our own. And this extraordinary kind of epiphany, revolution in our apprehension of reality is occurring. We're alive as it's happening, as we are discovering that we are not separate from the earth. And that the earth, to quote that great, British engineer George Spencer Brown, who'd been studying non boolean algebra, and so we can only conclude, he says, that the universe is so constructed as to be able to observe itself, as he discovers cursive nature of causality, that we are waking up to our non-separateness from Earth. And of course then... We're filled with grief because the earth is suffering and the earth is being destroyed. And of course our joy because that everything that ever was and all beauty is ours as well. So we're caught between this incredible dual experience That traditional education of the Western, modern, Western human can't prepare us for of deep kinship with all life and the realization that we are each of us an expression, an exquisite, unrepeatable. Unique expression of this planet, this planet's life. And it's not just some poetic fantasy because quantum physics and systems theory, that's why I devoted years to studying it, are saying the same thing. Often they don't realize it. (laughs) They don't. They try to make it fit into the demands of the Industrial Growth Society, (laughs) but uh, the import is of a profound reciprocity at the heart of the universe, as I said, and that uh, we are earth in countless forms. And our roots go deep and our hearts are immense and we can put ourselves to sleep and pretend that we don't know but the sneaking suspicion is always there that there's some incredible revelation about to seize us and it does over and over again and then we forget and then it comes and then we forget (laughs) It's hard to hang on to it in a consumer society. And so what we were doing yesterday was experiencing how you can find that out. Perhaps one way of uh, knowing you belong is uh, is with the tear because the grief and because the uh, outrage and the dread that we're carrying cannot be reduced to concerns for our own skin. It's of a different nature. It has to do with the whole, the whole shelf. And psychotherapists may try to reduce it to concerns about ourselves. I remember when I went to my first therapist. I, I thought it was about my son. He was a, it was a child psychologist, but she was asking me things. And I told her about my grief over the bulldozing of the forests outside our town. And she wanted to reassure me that actually the bulldozers only represented my fear of my own libido. (laughs) (laughs) And I bet that I'm not the only one in this room who has had similar diagnoses of this as we wake up to something uh, calling through us. And, And so I love Thich Nhat Hanh for that wonderful statement of his. He was asked once, I guess this was about 20 years ago, by one of his students, what is the most important thing we can do for the healing of our world? And I think his questioners were wanting to say, well, just continue sitting on your Zafu or don't get up and run for office or uh, go roll bandages or something. And his answer sidestepped all of that. He said, the most important thing for us now is to hear within ourselves the sounds of the earth crying. And then, much of what was said in the Truth Mandala yesterday, I could hear the earth crying. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? It says, in just those few words, that we are so linked in the web of life that we could hear it, that we so belong. To the earth, that we could hear it, and that it is truer of us than the uh, accidents and woes and ups and downs of our personal life, or as true. Yeah. So this is the big, um, I beauty of what's happening now is this homecoming and maybe in another era, another time then uh, there'll be a time for projecting it out again, but right now our what's seizing us I believe both in our plans and our excitement and our passion for taking part in building a sustainable world and taking part in the great turning or in the grief that seizes us. All of that is this uh, retrieval of the sacred into our lives. So I'm going back to these images of the Mother of All Buddhas. And I want just—I I don't want to take too long on this. I've already been talking too long, but um, I want you to see how revolutionary she is, and how that what that summons for us. You see, um, first of all, she's as uh, contemporary as tomorrow, because those. Words that were for her—the deep space, endless, purnashanya ka naba, this hole in the center of the wheel, which could also be symbol for the female. It allows the wheel and the wheel of the Dharma as well as the wheel of a wagon to turn for this to be. That motion is possible because it is empty. Now, mathematicians are fascinated by how important in the history of thought on this earth, and mathematics in particular, how it changed so much, what a huge leap it was to uh, have the concept of zero. In the Near East, in Sumer and Mesopotamia, they had their computations And uh, they managed to create quite a civilization, but they didn't have a zero. And it's, I I don't have the time or capacity right now to tell you how that limited what they could do to not have even the idea of a zero. They used something else for a placeholder. And that the, so one day in the stacks at Cornell, this book fell off a high shelf and hit me on the head. <laughs> and I opened it up to a chapter by Ananda K. Kumaraswamy on the uh, origins of the concept of zero. And I would have put it back, but then I thought, ooh, ooh, ooh what does it say? And it said before there was a cipher, a sign for the number, there were uh, verbal words, and the concept of zero came with Arab traders who came from around from South India to the Middle East. South India was a place where the uh, the mother of all Buddhas was appearing in the early Mahasangika's monasteries and, and said that the first expressions of zero were, and I kid you not and I want you to just give great expressions of great surprise, the same words ka, naba, akasha shunya and purna was what they used for the idea of zero later they gave it Astonishment! Oh. Another gasp! Oh. And I've just got another endorphin release. Just think about it. Oh. And what did they take to? Sh- what did they take for zero? Did they take a a cross? No. Did they take an asterisk? No. Did they take an ampersand? No. What did they take? (laughs) I know. I know. Around the emptiness or sunyata, which she, Prajnaparamita, represents, the wheel of the dharma turns. That void is, as D.T. Suzuki said, not an abstraction, but an experience or a deed enacted where there is neither space nor time. And then in this section, I'm, I'm reading from uh, what was sent out to some of you, I gather, is a chapter in my book, "World Is Lover, World Is Self," on the Mother of All Buddhas. So these symbols appear. I point out in the Four Quartets by T. S. Eliot, and I just read what that calls to mind, can t- call to mind from us, for us. Garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree, but there when it's open, at the still point of the turning world, there the dance is. We must be still and still moving into a further intensity for a further union. In the end is our beginning. So this is very different from the and, and this is the last thing I want you to just gasp over the wonderfulness of it. Um, this is very different from the dualisms of uh, that still rule a lot of our thought and that we must not in the women's movement or in our own activism fall prey to it because the old dualisms oppose sky father to earth mother. And this kind of... So it's an axis where the spiritual journey is going up. Often to extricate yourself from a messy, suffering world. And the journey is often toward the light from... Ooh! Get away from the darkness. Toward... Mind... Away from matter, or body. From death to life. We want to have one end of the the duality and cancel the other. So, the old prayer that the Buddha's and the Prajnaparamitas, what she represents in her symbolism, uh, is opposed to that prayer from we will go from darkness to light. Let us go from darkness to light. Let us go from life, from death to life. Let us go from the broken to the perfect. The imperfect to the perfect. So now we come to the fact that there's a lot of dissatisfaction in some of us about the use of the word perfection of wisdom. The word is paramita. Which is uh, often translated as "gone beyond" or maybe "complete." You other teachers over there, how do you translate paramita? Gone beyond. What? Gone beyond. Cross over. What? Crossing over. Yeah. Carl Gustav Jung had this to say about the, and, 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 and I think this also, you know, and this started out by talking about the systole, diastole of the spiritual experience. As we are retrieving the projection of the sacred and bringing it back to our very bodies, and I loved it. In the Truth Monday yesterday, that we flashed our boobs, and I—I I didn't do it myself, but I was there. I was right there doing it. <laughs> it's all sacred. How is a newborn gonna survive, except from the breast? For crying out loud. So Carl Jung has, puts it in an astrological metaphor that as we move from the age of Pisces to that of Aquarius, we see the spiritual journey differently. The spiritual journey had been seen as a journey toward perfection. But in the age of Aquarius because Pisces, you know, the two fish, there's a dualism at the core of it. But in the age of Aquarius, the spiritual journey is one not to perfection but to wholeness. And that um, call to be whole, it asks everything of us and is a liberation at the same time. Nothing needs to be set apart from the other. We can love our minds, our brainy minds, and we can love our cunt and its pleasures. We can love it all. And that, at this point, what it's that the fact that just at this point, when We've reached this point of the dying of the oceans, and the felling of the forests, and the extinction of the species, and the hungry, and the and the imprisonment of our brothers and sisters, and the insanities and the war making. There's we're closer to nuclear war than at any time. We are preparing it. We are spending more on nuclear weapons than at any time in the Cold Cold War. And it is at this time that we can see what it can mean for us that in our time, the Earth was seen. Oh, yes, not just symbolically, yes, there was the goddess of Earth, and she was called Gaia. But science is seeing that this is a self-organizing system and that the, first the hypothesis now proved to be a theory of the self-regulation of this living system. We've barely begun to open ourselves to grasp what that can mean for our minds and our spirits and our hearts and our ordinary life, that we are part, living parts of a living planet. And I absolutely love it that when uh, Sir James Lovelock, he was knighted for this discovery, he was taking a walk with his friend, Golding, mm, author, and he said, wondered what to call this hypothesis. He could call it hypothesis of the self-regulating capacities of the planetary system. But his friend Golding said, well, (laughs) you could, why don't you call it, after the ancient Greek, goddess for Earth? Bless him. (laughs) And so Gaia hypothesis has become Gaia theory. And it's caught on. And it's caught on because of a deep resonance. It's calling us awake to a kind of belonging that is real and that is two-way. It's so real that this earth and her beings aren't just objects we can love and treasure and work to save, but they love us back. That we can learn to be seen and loved by our world. As just as we learn to be held by our world as we serve it. This great reciprocity This like a new chapter totally in keeping with the core insight of the Lord Buddha, of Paticca Samuppada. And I am aware, I, I want to bring, convey for you the sense I have, and perhaps you do too, I'm sure you do, of how people stepping into new responsibilities, new kinds of actions for this planet and its, all its life are uh, feeling... Uh, supported in their actions by Earth itself, that it's like a two-way street. In a lecture at a college campus some years back, I gave examples of activities undertaken in defense of life on Earth, actions in which people risk their comfort and even their lives to protect other species. In the Chipko or tree-hugging movement in North India, for example, villagers promote them, protect the remaining woodlands by putting their bodies between the b- axes and the bulldozers and interposing their bodies. And in the open seas, Greenpeace activists intervene to protect marine mammals from slaughter. And after that talk, I received a letter from a student, and he wrote, I think of the, this is what he wrote, I think of the tree huggers hugging my trunk, blocking the chainsaws with their bodies. I feel their fingers digging into my bark to stop the steel and let me breathe. I hear the bodhisattvas in their rubber boats as they put themselves between the harpoons and me so I can escape to the depths of the sea. I give thanks for your life and mine and for life itself. I give thanks for realizing that I too have the powers of the tree-huggers and their bodhisattvas in their rubber boats. Now, did you catch what he did? Did you see how he expanded his sense of who he was? That he was, had a shift in identification. He was no longer Michael, a sophomore at uh, Evergreen College. He was uh, trees, a grove of trees in the Himalayas. He was the whale being saved. Again and again, I am seeing this. This is our capacity now. This is Gaia awakening in us. This is why in the Truth Mandala yesterday, when you were uh, weeping and pounding for, for what was happening to our world, it was, you were talking about your body as well as the planet's body. This, this... this shift in identification from the separate self that the consumer society identifies as its target. We're going to make you feel needy and small and separate so that we can sell our goods. And at the same time, what you're doing is you're opening up to the plight of the whole planet and identifying as if the planet were your body as it is. This fascinates me. This is what I see right there is capable, possible for us in the Buddha Dharma and in deep ecology, which is uh, not necessarily linked to Buddhism, but so similar to its apprehensions of the interconnectedness, the living tissue of life itself. That we are like neurons in a wider neural net. And I see it, I love seeing it again and again in the uh, people I know and love. And one of the first ones, or the first, where I saw this clearly was my friend in Australia, John Seed, the rainforest activist, founder of the Rainforest Information Center. And when I was there, he was telling me about an epiphany that happened for him that changed his life. He had just gone with some of his He was a hippie Buddhist farmer at a commune called Bodhi Farm. But then there was an old stand, a beautiful forest, the ancient trees going back to old Gondwana land, and they were being illegally logged And the activists were getting an intervention at the provincial capital in Sydney to stop it, but the lumber companies and the police were in cahoots, didn't, went right ahead. And so John and his friends went and stood between the chainsaws and the trees. And he took me there because it worked. It's still standing. You can go see it. He was telling me how the paddy wagons were revving in the peace with their bullhorns and the ch- chainsaw screaming and the grappling hooks to k- take the logs and with it all all that mayhem and they just standing there and they had nothing to protect themselves or the trees except their bodies and that's when he got got it who he really was. He was the rainforest. He said, I realized then that I was not John Seed protecting the rainforest. I was the rainforest protecting herself through this piece of humanity that she nurtured into existence. So that's there for us to experience. You get the difference that would make? Yeah. That there's a huge power working through us far beyond our own noble or faulty or virtuous or silly selves. Once we put ourselves in service to the earth, then the power of the earth comes through us. So we're going to have a little practice in uh, giving voice to that now. And uh, I think we'll... Just take a a few minutes now of sitting quietly uh, so that some of you, if any of you need to run around, you can do it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.